Why the hell do I look like I'm fucking measuring up a big old dick? Nicholas Cage is probably one of our generation's definitive actors. Hello and welcome to Cage Fighting. It's your main man, Andy Gillard here. Hope everyone's keeping well in the world right now. Hi everybody, Matt Guy here. Hope your heating isn't on yet. It's against the rules. Yeah, we don't need heating on yet. Hello everyone. Gentlemen, if we had a good week catching up on uh, what's the name of this film? It could happen to you. For some reason, I keep getting, I keep calling it, it could happen to anybody. Which sounds like a bit more of a horror film than what this one is. <laughs> Uh, yeah, not been bad to be fair. It's been a real treat to get a film that you can just put your telly on, go onto a streaming platform, and it's there. We haven't got into the dark recesses of the dark web to find. It's been quite pleasant. Yeah, and it's there's been no uh, no arguing about the the resolution of it or anything like that. It's just there, a nice Sunday chill to watch this today. Um, yeah, little peep behind the curtain there. Yeah. It was, it was. I think is this. This has got to be the first one for a good few months where we haven't had to find it through dodgy means. It's got to I be. I swear to God, it's like the first, yeah. like in about a calendar year. I can't remember the last <laughs> one I could like just click on. Maybe like a like an Amazon Prime one, maybe. Yeah, I think the last one I remember was the one where he threw the nonce off the bridge on the underpass. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. Which, again, I've forgotten the title of because we just never remember it, do we? Um, pay- no, that wasn't Payback. Oh, Venge- no, it wasn't Vengeance a Love Story, was it? That was the rapey one. Venge- that, yeah, that was the one where she gets raped in the first three minutes, which was oh quite a film. Uh, but yeah, this one is, uh, as I said, it could happen to you, loosely based on a true story, apparently. Um, before we get into it, any hopes and fears? Matt, had you heard about this film? What were you hoping to get from a mid-90s cage comedy classic? I hadn't heard of it at all. The only thing that gave me a little bit of um, hope was that it had been picked up by a streaming platform. But then the realist in me probably did realise it probably just came as a package deal with TriStar or something <laughs> like that. that like they just bought their back library or something like that. So um, my worry was that it was just going to be any schlocky romantic comedy Nick Cage love story. Stuart, what about yourself? I mean, the fact that there was, even just seeing that TriStar logo at the start, it kind of warms your heart a little bit. Oh, It was a throwback and a half, wasn't it? Yeah, that's nice. Um, but yeah, yeah, same. And I, I knew of it because of when uh, it, it's subject matter and I remember it at the time of when the lottery launched here. That was a thing. and But I couldn't remember the actual name of the the film. Um, but that was the extent of my entire knowledge of it, <laughs> that there was a film based on a lottery win in America and that was it. Um, but that, that was all I knew. And then you look on Netflix and you look at the picture that comes up and you think, yeah, this is, this is an early nineties classic and it kind of is. Spoiler. Yeah, absolutely. It's the most nineties film I think I've ever watched. Um, not not particularly in a bad way. It was very much of its time, and that that's perfectly fine. I I vaguely remember seeing the trailer on, might have been Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, VHS. Like I've definitely seen the trailer to this film. I don't think I'd ever actually sat down and watched it, but so I sort of knew about it. Uh, the cast, obviously Nick Cage. He is playing a man who is married to Rosie Perez. Her character is Muriel. I think she's a solid supporting actor in pretty much everything she did. She's a very 90s actor and then sort of disappeared from the mainstream doing mostly voice work and TV. Made a bit of a comeback over the last, um, well, the 2010s with the Harley Quinn and uh, Birds of Prey. And she's a voice in Human Resources animated show on Netflix. We've also got Bridget Fonda, who is a very, very famous name. But I really struggled to think of anything that I'd seen her in. And then I had to look on IMDb and actually Godfather 3, Road to Wellville, Jackie Brown. So she has done a bit, but she did retire in 2003. 
when she started a family with her husband, Danny Elfman, which I found that quite surprising, to be fair. We've also got Wendell Pierce. Um, I really like Wendell Pierce. I think he's excellent. Really good in a show called Unsolved, The Murder of Tupac and The Notorious B.I.J. And we had The Tooch, Stanley Tucci. Um, just seen, I, I love Stanley Tucci. I don't know what it is, but he just seems to play the, the perfect arsehole in any film. <laughs> he's really good at like grasping that role. And I don't think he disappointed in this film. But sadly, there wasn't a great deal of him. Fellas, any of that cast that uh, you're particularly fond of? Pretty much the same as you. I mean, Stanley Tucci, obviously. And I do like Godfather 3. I know he gets shit on a bit because it's not the first two. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I remember it from that and Jackie Brown again. Both of them being the, the underrated versions of the kind of collective whole of, of their kind of yeah. era. So yeah, it was, I mean... When we look, I looked up the picture of what she what she's doing now, and it, it, that was a bit of a shock to the system that she hasn't been seen in public for twelve years, and now she's a mid fifties woman with considerable amount of weight on her. And you think, okay, fair enough, you you you've lived your life how you want, good good for you. Um, but yeah, the fact that I hadn't seen her for so long, it was even more of a shock because you don't expect from mm-hmm. one one extreme to the other, do you really? But yeah, I think. When it came up with, again, doing my usual thing of not knowing who anyone was in there, other than when it, the names were coming up on the title screen, then you saw always oh, a case. You think, oh, okay, chef. That's, it's been a while. Yeah. So, yeah, so seeing him at the start, and then you think, is this going to happen through the whole film? This is a bit odd. <laughs> um, but obviously, we'll come into that anyway. But yeah, that, I think always oh, a case, Stanley Tucci and, and her for a brief little part were, were all I knew, really. Mm. Matt, how about yourself? Yeah, big fan of the Tooch. Um, I remember the first film I saw him in was The Terminal, the criminally underrated The Terminal. Mm. And um, yeah, I think he's great at what he does. He he maximizes his minutes, as we'd say if he was a foot a poacher or a footballer. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's good. And, and you know, Isaac Hayes is a surprise in it. And as Stu mentioned, like his appearances throughout the, the film were, were strange, but I think they were actually really well done. Um, I enjoyed seeing him in it as well. So, um, and 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 with with Fonda, she was one of these like I can't really say that I like can remember her much, but it surprises me that she went out of the limelight because she couldn't. I don't. I can't think of a more natural like all American woman, like nice mm. neighbor next door kind of actress that that she portrayed in this film. I can't think of anybody who would, who does that better. Than she did in this, to you know, to be that kind of slice of American Pie kind of actress. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. What she was in this a mm, bit I like think... um, a bit like Tia Leone mm. in a similar yeah. kind of way. Where she, again, we talked about that her last year in the uh, in the the classic Hardy <laughs> film that we'll obviously mention in a few months' time again. Um, but yeah, she did the similar kind of thing. She just disappeared. Out of, nowhere from from the late 90s early 2000s and went away in this case forever but yeah i think them two are kind of interchangeable they've got that kind of the girl next door look about them they, they they're not yeah like classics like stunning hollywood blondes they're just your normal girl next door which is more appealing really mm, they they they're pretty and look like you would bump into them into the streets. They look like normal human beings almost. Mm. What, what I find really odd about Bridget Fonda, though, especially, is if you look at her family tree, she's married to Danny Elfman. Obviously, her dad is Peter Fonda. Her grandfather is Henry Fonda. And her aunt's Jane Fonda. She's like one of the most connected people in Hollywood. And she just walked away from it. That's It's astounding, that is. I've, I've mm. never known that to happen before. Uh, obviously, the director on this one as well, that is Andrew Bergman, a name that we have mentioned previously because he directed, which I think was the first film we watched this year, Honeymoon in Vegas. Obviously, he's best known as a writer, Blazing Saddles, Fletch, Soap Dish, The Scout, Striptease. So he's done a fair bit. Um, and I've found this film was very reminiscent of Honeymoon in Vegas. It had quite a lot. Tonally, it felt like it was quite a similar film to it, I've believed. IMDb describes this movie as a police officer promises to share his lottery ticket with a waitress in lieu of a tip. Well, the lotto jackpot has grown to over $64 million. It all started with a lottery ticket. You got the numbers wrong! Wrong? 
an honest cop, and a waitress. Probably you've had good luck your entire life, which is the opposite of me. In the middle of a very bad day. You just don't have enough for a tip. I'll live. Lottery ticket? If this ticket wins, I'll come back tomorrow and split the proceeds. And if it doesn't, I'll still come back and leave you a tip. What do you think? I think I'm never going to see you again. What happened next? 64. What? It's beyond their wildest dreams. I've got something to tell you. The film begins with Chef telling a story of Charlie Lang, which is Nick Cage, a policeman who was friendly with neighbourhood kids, a patient man with common sense. We get a visual of Charlie running into the New York streets to grab a blind man who was walking down the busy roads and then helping deliver a baby on a bus. We then meet his wife, Muriel. She's a bit of a bitch, to put it bluntly. She hates their life in Queens and hates that Charlie is, quote unquote, just a cop. She's vacuous, vapid, and she only wants money. That seems to be her whole being. We also meet Yvonne, who is down on her luck in a court case where she's been forced to pay her separated husband's debts while she's only on a waitress's salary. I thought this was a really clever way to just immediately introduce us to the three main characters in the film. They tell us straight away who each one is, and she gives a little bit of show, don't tell. They let us know that Nick Cage is a good man by showing him delivering a baby and playing stickball in the street with kids. We know that Yvonne is someone who is struggling a little bit with life, trying to talk a judge into not you know, shitting on her. And we see that his wife Muriel is just a bit of a horror show. I thought that was a really nice opening segment, personally. Stu, do you agree? Yeah, and voiceover intros are always kind of... They either work or they don't work. Mm. And with this one, I thought, oh, no, please don't be like this all the way through. And it wasn't. It was just setting the scene. And it like you said, it worked really, really well. And in this, the space of, what, five, ten minutes, you had the whole you had the whole setup. You knew everyone. There was no kind of no over-exuberant nonsense and backstories. It was done, done and dusted. So just get straight into it, job done. And it worked really, really well. Mm. Matt, voiceover into introductions. What what are your thoughts there? Um, I think they have their time and place. I didn't think this one was particularly jarring or anything. Um, the best it will ever be was George of the Jungle, <laughs> and they, you know if, if if they stopped there, then it would have been fine by me. Um, but I think the opening of this film was exactly what it needed to be. It was a bit of a running theme, though, throughout as the film goes on. This show me, tell me, or this whole um, you're you don't need any kind of knowledge of life at all. That everything's going to be given to you in this mm-hmm. in in this film. Um, kind of ran all the way through. Well, in the start, it wasn't a problem at all. Yeah. Charlie Lang and his partner, Bo Williams, stumble upon a cafe. Lang comes across a bit of a weirdo prick in this scene, which I thought was odd from what they literally just told us about him. He stares really intently at Yvonne. Like, we know he's friendly, but the eye contact sort of went from friendly to being creepy, almost. Mm. And then he makes this dreadful joke to this woman who was clearly having a bit of a rough day, who works in a New York diner about wanting some lobster thermidor or something. I was a bit like, you don't come across as a sympathetic character here. You seem a bit of a dick. Uh, But we carry on anyway. Um, They order their food, and before they get the food delivered back to them, they get called away to go to a crime. Um, Lang goes to Yvonne to settle the bill. He doesn't have enough for a tip, though. Feeling guilty, he offers Yvonne a deal. Instead of a tip right now, they'll go halved on his lottery ticket. If he wins, then they'll split it. And if he doesn't win, then he will give her a double tip tomorrow. That night, Muriel is reading the lottery numbers that Charlie put on. And she points out that he got the numbers wrong. They got married on the 27th and not the 26th. Mid-moan, the newsreader reads out the winning numbers. And wouldn't you know it, they were Charlie's numbers. He might have picked the wrong numbers, but it turns out they were actually the right numbers. They've won $4 million. 
in 21 annual payments. Muriel was worrying they wouldn't be able to live on four million. And to add to their woes, Charlie tells Muriel that they now have to split their winnings. And she goes apeshit at him. First question, though, uh, if you won the lottery, would you want a lump sum or would you want it in the annual payments? Um, I think the sensible one in me would want it annually just because I know I wouldn't gamble it all away or make one really bad investment <laughs> and then lose it all. But the other side of me wants to win it all and like kill myself in a mad cocaine Feels <laughs> great. <laughs> Just bet it all on red. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Stu? Probably be split up like that, actually. I mean, I've always said that because I've always said this. Oh, if you, if you won it, what would you do? And I'm, oh, I wouldn't do that much different to what I do now, really. <laughs> it's mm. I'm perfectly fine as I am. It'd just be more comfortable. <laughs> well, obviously yeah. a lot more comfortable, but again, the, the temptation... I've had the temptation of things before, then they end up with a PS5 because there's no football on. <laughs> and so <laughs> <laughs> you, you do get that, that side of things and you could come out with a 120 inch telly and stuff like that. But even, even with that ridiculous amount of money in a payment plan, it's still going to be a ridiculous amount of money. So mm. yeah, I, I think that that'd be uh, 38 years old. I'd say payment plan. If you'd said this 10 years ago, it would have been all up front. <laughs> See, I, yeah, I do think, sorry, there's an element of um, this kind of stuff. I had this conversation with Sam the other day. If you had all that money, does anything ever become a treat anymore? Like It, it doesn't, does it? Because yeah, it's then, like, not a treat, you, it's just stuff. So when, you, when you've got immediate access to anything, like Game Pass, like I've got immediate access to all these games, so none of them become that special anymore because I can just get rid of them when I want. I've not... Like Elden Ring, I had to force myself to love it because I had to pay for it. <laughs> it's very true. I, I like to think I would take the lump sum because $4 million today is worth more than $4 million in 21 annual months payment. Like just because money depreciates over time, I think it makes more sense to take the money now and invest it. Mm, that's a very fair point. Very sensibly not- point. I also know that I have a problem with buying shit, so <laughs> that would be a bit of a drawback as well. So who knows? Uh, what I did like, though, at 20 minutes and 30 seconds, I had to pause the film in excitement. It was a shot outside the diner, and I recognised where they were. I knew exactly where they were. If you look in the background, you can see the Ghostbusters headquarters, the door to the Ghostbusters headquarters. It was open. Mm. I got really excited at that moment. Uh, but yeah, that's 20 minutes anyway, so... Uh, what do we think, Matt? Uh, yeah, I was enjoying it. I was invested in, you know, with what we knew, which was so simplistically put, you knew that uh, Cage's wife's a bit of a cunt and you uh, wish bad things upon her. You, it's, it, all the scenes have been set. Let's go with it. Like, the question in the back of my mind is, how are they going to 90s schlock this up? Like, what are they going to do to make this more convoluted than it needs to be? Because I didn't know how they were going to drag this story out for so long i assumed they win the lottery at the end yeah i thought it was going to be their relationship how they get to know each other and then they win the lottery and it complicates things there's your drama and then it ends but no they win the lottery at the start it's like world trade center all over again <laughs> <laughs> Stu, what did you think i was loving it I, it was it was so in, in, in these darkened days, it, it was just, it was like a, a warm, a nice, warm, fluffy blanket watching this. Mm. It was just, it was just really nice. <laughs> and the only thing that was getting to me was her fucking voice. I mean, I, I'm guessing that she, that's not real and she doesn't speak yeah, she's, like that. She's from the Bronx, New York. Like she's a, a Bronx chick. Um, and she was proper, like hamming up the, I believe it's Puerto Rican was the, yeah. the, the stereotype that she was playing. But, like, that's the point. She's supposed to get on your tits. And she did a great job of it, I thought. She did a perfect job because uh, it was that was the only thing that was tempting me to turn it off because it was getting to me (laughs) so much. I thought, how could you live with this with more? I mean, this has been 20 minutes. How can you live with this for the best part of 15 years or wherever it was? (laughs) It's just just asking for trouble. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, though, Matt, that you mentioned um, 
World Trade Center. Because I was thinking about like when we used to do picture pods way back when, and we used to do two films, and I used to try and pair them up. And actually, mm. this would have been the perfect accompaniment to World Trade Center. It's looking at New York from a different perspective, and it's also got Nick Cage as a cop. So actually, there's a few weird little parallels in it, and yeah, they really are. It's it, all the better for it, I thought. I, I enjoyed the opening salvo. I thought it was a, a good, fun start to a movie. I thought everyone had played their parts to perfection, really. Uh, the following day, Lang returns to the coffee shop to see Yvonne. She apologises for how short and rude she was to him. While she's rushing around and serving customers, Lang is watching her, seeing how she was with an AIDS patient. She showed him humanity and kindness. Lang gifts Yvonne a string to put around her glasses so that she doesn't keep losing them. She <laughs> confesses how rough her life has been and this was the nicest thing that anyone has ever done for her. Lang offers Yvonne a choice. Does she want a double tip or does she want to split the lottery ticket? She doesn't know the result at this point. She decides to risk it and takes the lottery ticket share and then Lang reveals what they've actually won. So she has now got $2 million. We get some montages of Lang's spending the money. It's mostly Muriel buying shit she doesn't need, whereas he is trying to give money to homeless people and, again, sort of ramping up the fact that he's a bit of a saint and she's a bit of a sinner, I think, is the point of that scene. Then we see Yvonne and her deadbeat husband calls her. He plays dumb, acting like he has no idea that she's won the lottery. Whilst at work, Lang goes to the local bodega to grab a coffee. The owner gifts him a free coffee, so he immediately realises that the bodega is being robbed. Lang decides to enter through the basement whilst his partner, Williams, is standing outside so that the crooks can see him and they won't leave. Lang manages to take out both of the crooks. He's a hero, but he's also being shot. Whilst off recuperating, the Langs attend some swanky party on a boat with some of the high rollers. Maybe it's because it's the 90s, but I don't feel like $4 million in New York money is really that much money in the grand scheme of things to be hanging out with the great and the good in midtown Manhattan. Especially when they're talking about like $50 million. Like the person they're talking is, is just so far ahead of them. I don't know if this is a time thing or if it's just uh, it's it's actually just embellished somewhat. I don't know. But it, this was this was weird though because on the thing at the front it said "Welcome Millionaires," and then inside it said "Welcome Lottery Winners." And I, I, I blocked that. Yeah, I thought it must be a boat for lottery winners because none of them on there, like exactly what you just said, none of the people with actual money would be milling around with people who just got lucky. Because I think, oh, well, that's not real earned money, is it? You know what these people are like. So I, I thought it was a ju about just for winners of the lottery. That would probably make more sense, actually. I never clocked that. So it could be that. Whilst they're on the boat, Charlie notices that Yvonne is getting out of a taxi, but she's having some trouble. The driver doesn't have change for a 20, which just seems bizarre for a taxi driver. Charlie runs over to help out. Whilst paying for the cab, the boat leaves both Yvonne and Charlie on land. Rather than waiting around, they decide to go and grab dinner together. Yvonne explains that she set up a table in her diner in Charlie's honour. For anyone who cannot afford a meal, they can sit at this table and have a free meal. Charlie and Yvonne spend the evening. They talk and they develop a kind of kinship, sort of, on the brink of an affair almost. Meanwhile, on the boat, Muriel is having a whale of a time with Jack, some rich old fella dancing and chatting the night away. So we're about an hour in at this point. Love is in the air, but nothing has really happened. Stu, how are you feeling at this point? I mean, I thought, uh, first of all, I thought he was going to do something. When they said, oh, it's a rat downstairs, and then there was actually a rat on that weird like um, conveyor belt thing when he's in the in the in the cellar of the building before he gets shot. Mm. I thought he was like going to pick it up and throw it at him or something as a kind of ha 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 funny kind of ad lib thing. But then the rat never happened <laughs> and it just disappeared. I thought, oh, they're going to make a whole thing about this, especially where he kind of pulled himself back against the wall like, in fear. Um, but as, so as soon as, as soon as um, Queen Hall was 
started flirting with a rich guy. I thought, yes, you go for it now. She's shown her true colours at last. You've got an excuse. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was the same. I was completely engrossed in it. I, I, this kind of thing, I've said many times when we, when we watch rom-coms on here, that a lot of the time it's okay, that it's fine. But this I was properly involved in. Uh, I didn't even, uh, no, no clock checking, no phones, no nothing. I was just completely focused. I, was, I loved it. Matt, are you loving it or is it great? Yeah, a little bit. No, I was, I was really enjoying it, but I, I, I was enjoying it for potentially all the wrong reasons, I guess. Um, like I, I was enthralled, I was enthralled in the story, I, but the problem was, and I, I made Sam watch the trailer before we recorded and she basically outlined the entire film for me without seeing it. She like, this is, this is what's <laughs> going to happen, doesn't it? And I think that was the frustrating part of it. But I was really enjoying it. Like the, it, it, it had little touches that realmed into like airplane almost. <laughs> like, and the way that it told its story through the, the constant use of newspapers, mm. and like it had just little touches that were way more nuanced than a rom-com from the 90s could be and get mm. away with it had these little fun little nuances well what I, what I did find quite funny is that um the hilariously named angel david from um <laughs> who plays skank in the crow is is must be a career criminal because he's one of the uh, he's the ones holding up the korean shop as well so i knew i knew him from somewhere and i had to stop googling him to take like, i can't remember where i'd seen him before and um, yeah, he was in it. But yeah, I like even just the elements of when he like when they walk out and he realizes the shop's being robbed and stuff. In just any old normal boring nineties rom com, they'd have they'd have it just wouldn't have been done quite as as well as that. I, I was really enjoying it. I must admit, I I wasn't conscious of the time, like Stu said. And I, I thought at first when I saw it, it, it said an hour forty four on Google, but it was more like an hour twenty nine once it was on Netflix. I was really concerned I was going to be bored to tears with this, but no, I was I was enjoying it up to this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly in the same boat. I mean, it's a little bit slow in parts, I think, especially during the middle portion, but it's in no way bad. It's not unwatchable or anything. And I'm, I'm kind of invested in Nick Cage and his relationships with everybody. Mm. I thought he had, uh, the way he played it with each individual, his wife, his fair partner as we get on to it spoiler alert and his best friend i really liked his camaraderie with everyone i thought he was excellent I, I don't know if this and apologies if this is anyone's good bad or or crazy but i don't know if it was just bad script writing or this was meant to be actually a, a thing but every, as soon as every character gets money they turn to shit bags in this film no matter no matter who they are and for her to be funny with a taxi driver about breaking mm. a 20 when she's a millionaire seemed really weird. And it was totally against what she's like as a character. You'd have thought that like she'd have given that 20 and tipped him as opposed to trying to break a 20. Like it uh, just seemed a strange. Yeah. That, that's a very good point. That's I, I hope that's more bad script writing than anything. I just, it's I, just not character driven that bit. I just took that as the fact that oh, she's used to getting taxis everywhere and getting the change because she's so broke all the time. That's what I, I don't think that was a kind of oh she's turned into a bitch she wants every penny she gets I'll just talk that as oh she's used to getting the change back and because she needs the change she needs that four dollars back or whatever it, even mm. relatively small amount it is that's what I took from that bit yeah I mean Cage's character does say you're gonna have to get used to saying keep the change like yeah. he actually says that to her so you're probably mm. right Stu but it, it just struck me as a bit like oh actually for someone that's meant to be as altruistic as she is and like and and as he is it just struck me as a bit odd yeah absolutely Charlie and Yvonne spend the next day together roller skating in Central Park and playing for everyone so paying for everyone's subway ride home then taking local Queens kids to what I assume is the Yankees ground I don't know the name of it and I couldn't be asked to look it up on returning home, Muriel sees is seen throwing all of Charlie's clothes out of their apartment. He and Yvonne were pictured on the front of the New York Post together. After an argument ensues, Muriel asks for a divorce. Charlie leaves. He's going to a hotel. Meanwhile, in Yvonne's apartment, the Tooch has returned. He tries to get Yvonne to help him fund his own acting troupe, the Eddie Biassi Players. 
for fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> she basically tells him to fuck off, and she leaves the apartment. She's also going to stay in a hotel. Wouldn't you know it? They both arrive at the plaza at the exact same time. I had a look at how much it would cost to stay in the plaza. Um, from the 2nd of January to the 6th of January next year, £5,500. That is a dear do. Keep the change. I know, yeah. Filthy animal. And could, was that all you were thinking of? As, as soon as it said plaza, all I could think of, the world-famous plaza hotel. Yeah. That yeah, was like the first absolutely. thing in my mind, straight away. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Whilst at the hotel, Yvonne and Charlie kiss. That didn't take him long to get over Muriel, did it? During the mediation for the divorce, Muriel's lawyer tells Charlie that she doesn't want to split the lottery money and Charlie accepts he's happy to give it all away. She also contests that she wants the money promised to Yvonne too on the pretense that Charlie had a pre-existing affair with her. This goes to court and eventually they decide to give Muriel all the money. This, I thought, was probably the weakest part of the film. Um, it just seemed a little bit too over the top when the rest of the film has been relatively real world. I don't feel that this court case would have really played out the way it, what it did. It felt a little bit too fantastical for me. I don't know why. Mm, I really didn't like how to force it into the um, the court scene. They had him grab her arm aggressively mm. when he's not. He's clearly not like that at all. And this. And this and, I'm in no way, you know, cheapening the, the the problems that people with domestic abuse have or anything like that. But it was used in such a way; it was so like it was so forced and weird, and against mm. what we know from this character. Um, uh, though, oddly, I did chuckle when it was on the um, on the newspaper. Like, some cop hits wife. There's this sensation. It was almost like a spinning Batman. Like thing, they, just get, they just get thrown down, don't know, like these um these newspaper things. Yeah. I mean the court scene I actually didn't I didn't dislike, but um it was it was just a bit of a change of pace from how the film was, was being portrayed up to that point. But yeah, um, it wasn't terrible. Yeah. I mean for me it turned into a bit of a farce because he's obviously using his he's like old old time lawyer who's kind of he's clearly been in the family for years and that kind of thing and where she's gone all to the most expensive hot shot and you think well i know the sentimentality here but you, you she's clearly taking all of your money off it off you for some some mad reason which i don't it doesn't seem like it would be the case really mm-hmm. that she'd get that money anyway and especially not yvonne's part of it as well it just whatever it just seemed it seems a bit too slapstick compared to the rest. Like you, like you both said, it, it, the rest was grounded in the real, realish world, and then this turned into something else completely. Yeah, absolutely. Feeling guilty at costing Charlie all of his money, Yvonne runs away and tries to keep her distance from him. Charlie goes to the diner and tells Yvonne that the money meant nothing to him, and that he's hopelessly in love with her. Whilst they're smooching and dancing, Isaac Hayes rocks up looking like a homeless man. Yvonne and Charlie serve Hayes at the table that she set up for people who cannot pay. He eats his soup, and whilst they discuss moving to Buffalo, New York, and starting over, you see him pull his sleeve back, and he's got a camera up his sleeve, which seemed a really odd little thing, and I know that there's a reason for it, but it just looked really bizarre. Um, he takes his photo of them whilst they're talking and dancing and the voiceover reveals that Isaac Hayes is a photographer for the New York Post and that he has written an article explaining how this pair have given him food and money and generosity and gone above and beyond to help him. This whole thing with Isaac Hayes playing Angel throughout the film, so the film starts off with him doing the voiceover narration, he tells us his Angel. It did give me that... City of Angels sort of mm. feel like he was going to be this overseeing power. Um, and obviously it turns out that he's just this journalist posing as a homeless man. And like you see him keep popping up at the important moments of their life. I don't feel like it had the impact that I think they wanted it to have. I don't know if that's just me, but I, I, I don't think Isaac Hayes really worked in this. They could quite easily have just got any actor 
any no-name actor just to pretend to be a homeless man for this role. I don't know why they brought in Isaac Hayes to have this recurring spot fest because he didn't really influence the thingy and he only had a voiceover at the beginning at the very end. So I, I don't know why he's there, if I'm being perfectly honest. I thought it was like, like just a, a, before the homeless bit, I thought it was just a cool fourth wall, wink, wink, kind of thing just to have him in there because we know he's the narr- like narrating it and just to have him there is like a I don't know m- trying to make this more than just a 90s schlocky rom-com but then to have him be the homeless guy then doesn't make a lot of sense really I don't think unless he was always the reporter all the way through which would be weird because it's just a bit weird um so I don't know it was yeah, why they weren't just two different people? Your narrator who follows them around in in real time, and they're just there as as the angel that no one sees, you know, the bystander, and then just somebody else would have made a lot more sense, I think. Mm. I mean, I kind of because we've seen City of Angels as well, and we've seen things like this before, especially in rom coms where you have got like a kind of guardian angel kind of sitting on your shoulder, kind of omnipresence I kind of liked it from that point of view that it it kind of tricked you into thinking that that's what he was but then to reveal that he, he was actually just a normal bloke and he yeah he was doing the fourth wall stuff at the start they obviously got Isaac Hayes for his voice because <laughs> yeah it's his voice isn't it and I was just trying to look it up in South Park was three years later so it it's nothing to do with that. I mean, and obviously Shaft mm. was a long time before then. But yeah, he's he was still iconic. I still remember Isaac Hayes being a thing in the in the 90s before all the South Park stuff happened. So maybe that's why he was there. I mean, or a favourite to someone. Because it wasn't really a bit... I mean, he, probably, he could have done it in a, in a day's work, really. The mm. amount of on-screen time he had. Um, maybe it wasn't like a nod to the kind of guardian angel stuff that we've seen in other films. Maybe that's what the point was. And maybe there was no point. Maybe it was just one of them things. Oh, here's your narrator. He's also, he's also integral to the story and the kind of, Oh, that's nice. Well, mm. I, did, I didn't have a problem with it though. Fair enough. Before leaving for Buffalo, Charlie and Yvonne visit the diner one last time. They struggle to get through the doors as there has been a flood of letters. The post article struck a chord and people donated their money to keep the restaurant going. After all the good they did, the people wanted to return the favour, donating $600,000. After Charlie and Muriel get divorced, Muriel's new husband Jack takes off with all her money, revealing himself to be a con man. She then moves in with her mother in the Bronx and goes back to her old manicurist job. Yvonne's ex-husband Eddie ends up being a taxi driver Charlie happily returns to the police force and Yvonne reclaims herself, uh, her position at the diner. Uh, at the film's end, Charlie and Yvonne get married and begin their honeymoon taking off from Central Park in a hot air balloon that bears the New York Post headline, Cop Weds Waitress, just before the credits roll. So the final act comes in, it's like about 95 minutes in total. Thoughts on the ending, Stu? Hmm. This was the only part I didn't really. I like the whole the letters thing. Uh, I thought that was that was unexpected. Well, so unexpected. You you kind of knew exactly what was going on as soon as they walked through the door and and you see the pile. You think, yeah, it was it was obvious that the public are on these on these two side rather than her and whatever. Um, I don't know. It it, it just. It was like the court stuff. It just seemed out of place in a way. It, like it was like rushing to oh, this is what happened to these, and the, and especially since this, it's not really a true story. It was like okay, we've seen we didn't really need to see this, but at the same time, yeah, it's funny just to see them down on a look. But and it, I would have preferred it if you'd have seen her in a nail salon in the Bronx. Just scrubbing some old old woman's nails clean. That that would have been funnier rather than just a oh yeah, this is what happened to her. Maybe I'd have preferred that. Um, yeah, it just kind of annoyed me. I don't know. I don't really know why because I enjoyed the vast majority of this film. Um, it just felt a bit too quick. Maybe mm, possibly. Yeah. 
Matt? Um, firstly, I really didn't like how for a film that is trying to get across the message that you don't need money for happiness, he then shits over Tucci, who's only a taxi driver and she mm-hmm. only works in a salon, which I thought was weird. Um, and I didn't like how um, the hot air balloon at the end for a, for a couple that are so blue collar and deep rooted in being salt of the earth to then have her go off in a hot air balloon when it looks like there's money fucking dropping from underneath <laughs> it was a bit weird to the point of I wanted more Tucci and less Gucci from this film. I, like <laughs> I wanted more more uh, more Tucci in it, but. Um, yeah, the end. The ending is the ending. The good guys win, the bad guys lose, and it's all wrapped up in a neat little bow. It 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 it, it just served its purpose at the end. We, I don't think we were expecting a shock death or anything like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, it it ended how I expected it to end, more or less. Yeah, that I think that was my problem. Was it was it was very much what I expected it to be, and um, and ultimately everyone is back where they started, pretty much. Other than, like, Cage is now happy in his marriage. But, you know, Muriel's back miserable and broke. Tucci is miserable trying to make it. And you've got Yvonne and Cage, who are both now married again, but obviously to different people. The only change is that those two are just happy now. It didn't feel like there was any proper character arc for the people on the fringes of it. It was just the back to the start and I don't know they don't feel like those characters would have been changed by the journey at all and I feel that they probably should have learned a lesson I don't think Muriel just having to move back in with a mom is really learning a lesson being married and miserable is probably better for the character arc than it is for anything else so yeah it, it was fine it was just a little bit too obvious personally but then like as you said before the whole film is quite easy to guess what's going to happen just from the trailer isn't it so i suppose what are we expecting here uh, the budget on this one was 20 million dollars the box office return was 47.7 million dollars like it's got a decent return that has it could happen to you was released in 1994 and it feels very much like the type of year which has got some of all of our favorites in so some of the top-ranked films for 1994, according to IMDb, Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, Leon the Professional, The Lion King, Clerks, Interview with the Vampire, The Crow, Dumb and Dumber, and Speed. Ooh, it's a good wow. old year, isn't it, that? What a year. Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's not bad at all. Uh, the scores on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes. Stu, what do you reckon? It's one of these, ain't you? You're never going to get... It's never going to be critically acclaimed, so I'd guess around about six. Um, the fact that it doubled it doubled its money, you kind of think, well, people seem to... Well, people must have liked this film for it to, for that to happen. And But as per usual, I don't know anyone who's ever seen this or heard of it. So... <laughs> um, I'll go six and seven. Seven for the audience. Matt? Exactly the same as Stu's reasoning there. Exactly the same, six and seven. Mm, interesting. So IMDb, it's got a 6.4. Um, the Rotten Tomatoes audience score is 54%, which surprised me. That's a little bit low. Uh, the critical score is a 71%. So that, I, that, that surprised me as well because it's very paint by numbers. I thought that the critics would eat it up, but... No, no, they um, they mostly liked it. Uh, so the critical response, Robert Fares from the Austin Chronicle. The warmth and graciousness apparent in every frame keeps this movie touching and sweet. Roger Ebert, Bergman never goes for hand- heavy-handed schmaltz, and the whole movie has the same light-hearted big city spirit as the New York Post headlines that follow the story. Peter Travers from the Rolling Stone. Sweetness is fine as far as it goes, but this oddball romance could have done with a twist of lemon, which I think is fair. I'd like a little bit of just bitterness to all of the happiness. Oh, what a surprise. Yeah, just something just to (laughs) go against the grain almost a little bit. Just, yeah, 
Uh, uh, here we go. I said, Matt said to me earlier, Andy's going to hate this. And my exact response was, wait, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, where's it gone? Uh, I could tell you what it was. Yeah. No soul, it, Gillard. Yeah. Yep. No soul, <laughs> Gillard. It's just very nice. There you go. Yeah, that's exactly it, to be fair. <laughs> uh, Jeff Andrew from Time Out. Perez has a field day as Muriel, injecting some, uh, injecting a welcome note of good old-fashioned greed into what is an otherwise relentlessly edifying story. Uh, the fan response, <clears throat> those maniacs on Amazon.com loved this film. It's got a 4.6 out of 5, which is a better score than both Honeymoon in Vegas and Raising Arizona, both of which <laughs> have got a 4.4. Uh, it could happen to you received 91% 4 and 5 star reviews. So, yeah, it, it was kind of loved. Uh, one three star reviewer did say, Predictable, far from reality, okay-ish. As always, the cage lifts this above the level it deserves. It's interesting that he said it was predictable and far from reality from what is ostensibly based on a true story, but there we are. Uh, Boiled Potato gave a five-star review. Apart from the fact that Nicolas Cage has nice eyes, this is a really good film to enjoy. (laughs) You can't help but really hate the wife as she's pretty unpleasant. Uh, that is still the fun of it all, though. Um, so, good, bad and crazy. Stu, kick us off. I mean, the, the craziest, the fact that at the end of the credits, it actually says that, no, the, the real people who won the lottery are with their respective partners and they are happy. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> I've, I've never, ever seen anything like that in any film, ever. Mm. So they have to clarify that actually this is made up. Um, that was... Beyond strange, um, the good, uh, the good. I thought it was really well done for what it for what it is. I thought the acting was pretty good. I mean, she she made herself so bad and evil, so to speak, that I hated her. So <laughs> she did a very good job of doing that. That everyone everyone else was all sweetness and light. I thought the his little cop friend was was okay as well. And that whole scene with the fa- with the family around the table and when he's sleeping on the floor, I thought that was strangely nicely done. Um, I thought we've just, there was a lot of niceness in it. And on a Sunday morning, not even hungover, um, it's kind of what you want. And it, it's got, it's the perfect film for that time of day. Mm. It's a perfect Sunday morning film. Um, I mean, the bad, the bad, I mean, just the court, but I just didn't really... It felt out of place compared to the rest of what we'd seen already. Um, the core bit and then the end being a little bit rushed, but again, it's really picking at things to moan about because I generally did really like it. Hmm. Matt? So I think the good thing is it it was it was super sweet without eating a whole tub of ice cream. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> mm. it, it, yeah. To, to, to Stu's point, it's the perfect Sunday afternoon film and I didn't feel like I needed to be hungover to enjoy it as well because there's a there's a Sunday hangover film and then there's a Sunday afternoon film and the two are very different. Uh, and it was just a nice, super sweet slice of American pie. As I said before, it was just it was it was just a pleasant watch. Simple as. Um, the 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 negative to that is though, the cynic in me needed a little more edge and a little more, you know, it just, there's only so much of that I can take. Like, you know, I watched D I watched league of super pets or whatever it's called. Mm. And by the end, I was a little bit like, Oh, right. Okay. This is now, this is a kid's film now. Like, you know, it was just, there's only so much of that. So it was so grimly predictable all the way through that. Like I can only, not be challenged for so long when I watch some things sometimes. Um, and it's a good job. This wasn't kind of 15, 20 minutes longer because I'd have checked out then I think. Yeah. Um, the crazy is that they didn't go down. They could have just set this in December and it could have been a Christmas film and made oh, a shitload more money. It would have been amazing yeah. if it had been. And I'm amazed that they didn't, to be honest, because mm. it's got all the makings of a terrible, but great Christmas film. Mm. There's a there's a moral story there. There's there's love. There's 
you know, com- uh, even if they wanted to take it down the satirization of the commercial world that we live in and capitalism and everything, or if they wanted it just to go straight up love story at Christmas and they meet under the tree in Central, uh, like in in Times Square, or whatever. I'm surprised. I'm amazed they didn't go down that route and make it and make it a Christmas film. They would have made a shit ton of money with it. Yeah, mm. it, it's so Family Man at times where it, yeah, it's all, really it's almost is. it's almost a shame. It should be on your Christmas watch list, to be fair, because it does it embraces that that sort of happy go luckiness of a Christmas movie. You are right, yeah. It's a it's a perfect Christmas film that isn't a Christmas film. Mm-hmm. Mm. My good, uh, I thought Cage's chemistry with everyone was fantastic. I really liked all of his relationships with each of his three main co stars in this. Like it felt like his love affair with Bridget Fonda was real. That his distaste for who Rosie Perez had become was like palpable in parts and that his friendship with Wendell Pierce it felt natural and it felt realistic and as you said that scene where he's staying at his house after he'd he'd left um, Muriel I thought was fantastic when he pulls up the Barney um, sleeping bag (laughs) and it's too big for him so his feet are out of it and it just felt so nice and happy which is also my bad the nice and happy he just needs a little bit of something else just I don't know, just something to change the tempo a little bit. It was just a little bit too much. Whereas when uh, Bergman did Honeymoon in Vegas, we had a proper sort of moustache twiddling villain in the old fella whose name I forget. Um, like We had that proper cartoon character villain, which we don't really get in this. We just get Muriel being a bit of a cunt which it just wasn't enough to really grasp it, I think, which would have made it a, a really good 90s film for me. It's just a good one, not a great one, I think, is is the thing I'm getting at there. The crazy, uh, this might just be more of an annoyance than anything. I'm really disappointed we didn't get any Cage and Tooch together on screen. I feel yeah. like they'd be the perfect partnership on screen. We've got one film which we need to watch, um, Kiss of Death which is from 1995. It's a year after this one. It's a remake of a 1940s noir film. I don't know how much of the pairing we get to see in that. Looking on the cast list, the Tooch is quite low down on it, so we might not get much. Uh, The other thing that I did think was crazy, this feels quite anachronistic. Like We don't get films that are mid-priced that go to the cinemas and like really smash it. A 20 million film now generally goes to Netflix and gets ignored by the 100 million crap that they pump out on there. And it feels just really odd that we don't see this type of film anymore. And I think the world's a little bit worse off for it, to be perfectly honest. Mm, yeah, I think so. I Slightly, well, the, the, the Netflix scourge and streaming scourge that has annoyed my wife more than I thought it would, the fact that Hocus Pocus isn't at the cinema is rearing its <laughs> ugly head in my house because I'm trying to explain to her day and night why it's not in the cinema. And it's just not getting through. <laughs> I, I, I had the same conversation with my other half earlier today, funnily enough. Like, it, it, it does feel like they're missing a trick by by putting films straight onto streaming before cinemas. It feels like they're, they're putting... I, I understand it because they want long-term profit over a short, you know, 15 quid on day one. They want you to pay 12-month subscription. I understand the theory behind it. But I also think that it's nice to see films on a big screen at times as well, and we don't get that all the time now. You know what? The, the last film similar to this was that I could think of at the top of my head was Last Christmas. Probably, yeah. Probably. And that kind of cost that much, really. I know you have the, you have the, the Christmas bonus with that anyway, um, automatically. So that's why that gets shown in the cinema. And it was in the before times. So you, you factor all them things in. But that kind of like good feel-good film <laughs> with not much money spent on it relatively... Off the top of my head, that that's going to be the the last one I saw in the You're cinema. You're probably right. I'm just looking at it now. The budget was between twenty five and thirty million, so adjusted for inflation, it's probably cheaper than this. And the box office was one hundred and twenty three million. So again, adjusted for inflation, it's probably comparable. So that's yeah. quite um, yeah. That's a good call. That is, to be fair. So did you enjoy the film, Matt? 
Yeah, yeah, I did, surprisingly. I really feared for the worst when I factored all of the moving parts before watching it. But yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It was um it was pleasant enough. I told Sam she needs to watch it, think she'd really enjoy it, and um surprisingly, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. Did you? Mm-hmm. Absolutely loved it. And it's one of the weird ones where you can actually recommend it to people and just say, yeah, it's if you want something you don't have to think about, if you want something that's actually just nice. And it's very, it's not even, it's not even sweet popcorn, it's, it's full on candy floss. And <laughs> that's what this, that's what it is. It's a feel good fact. It's a feel good film. It's just over and half long. Knock yourself out. It's a great old time. You, you've stole my line because I've got in my notes here, it's saccharine fluff. It is candy <laughs> floss. It's exactly what this film is. It offers you no real nourishment, but it just makes you feel good for having taken it in. Yeah. And, and that's perfectly fine. I'm not sure I could really recommend it to that many people other than if you've got a lazy Sunday afternoon planned, you can do a lot worse than sit and watch this film because it's a perfect Sunday afternoon film, as you've both said. Yeah, great. So based on this film and this film alone, was Nick Cage good or was Nick Cage bad? Stu? Yep. I thought it was really good. And like like you already said, he's he had chemistry with absolutely everyone. And he had the the actual serious cop side of it. I mean, even with the rat thing or whatever. Um mm. But and for some odd reason, he did look like his arms were really ripped as well at, at points when he had that tight t shirt on. You think, well, where's this come from? This this one in the in the, in the shot earlier in the in the film. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought he did a really good job. It's a different side. We don't really see this kind of side to him that often. It's always kind of when when he doesn't do crazy cage, we're always moaning about it. But there was no need for it in this at mm-hmm. all. Yeah, we had smiley cage, which is rarer than anything, I think. Yeah, Matt, I'm not so sure. <laughs> um. I'd say yes, because I don't think he did anything bad in the film. I just think he could have been played by anybody. I think he I think anybody could have done the same any decent actor could have done the same that he did. I don't think he particularly brought a huge amount different than than somebody else would have brought. But he, he didn't do anything bad, so he must be have uh, been a good actor, but I'm not as as full of praise as Stu. That's fair. I see. I, I think I'm on Stu's team with this one. I thought he was really good. Like anyone could probably do that role. You are right. It's not a demanding role in in any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, he worked well within the confines of the script. He his relationships with everyone were genuinely quite believable. I thought I could buy him as Charlie Lang with the relationships with those people, and that's all you can really ask of an actor is to do the role that is in front of them. And I think he did a really good job with it. So it's two thumbs up for me on that. I thought he was excellent. Uh, finally then, finish the sentence. If you enjoyed It Could Happen to You, you might also like Matt. Um, it's a story of a loner and someone who's craving love in a really cruel world um, and a story of how someone struggles to fit in um, and ultimately makes the other people be better for them, even though they are not at first everyone's cup of tea. And it's um, Mr. B and the Ultimate Disaster Movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> I haven't mentioned it in a few months, and it's one of my favourite films. And it's sweet, it's funny, it's a Sunday afternoon film, it's completely unoffensive, and it just brings out the, it shows the best in people, which is sometimes is just what you need in life. That's fair. Stu? Um, it's got a bit... I mean, I've already mentioned The Family Man, so it's kind of a, a cop-out to say it again. It's, <laughs> it's got kind of... There's bits in it that are like... Um, like Sleepless in Seattle and things like that. It's got a... Where mm-hmm. it's, it's overly nice. And it's kind of too... Two lovers kept apart for at the start and then come together later on. The tale of oldest time, as they say. Um, but uh, sorry, I'm just going to say, just go and watch Family Man. It's nearly time. It's nearly time to watch it again, as well <laughs> as Trapped in Paradise, which we all look forward to very much. Um, so yeah, never again, Stu. Never again. Third time this year. 
Oh, God. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd also sort of like hinted on a, another Cage film. I've gone for City of Angels, though, mm, personally. Yeah. Um, it's a romance turned up to 11, that film is. And just for the line, um, we were made to fit together after they'd boned, will always make me laugh. <laughs> It is just like horrifically shit, but in exactly the right way that it needs to be. Um, if you want something a little less cagey, though, I've gone for The Big Sick, which is Kamal Nanjani. Um, it's his story of how he got together with his wife. They met and went on a date, and then she fell really sick very early doors in their relationship, and she went into a coma. And Kamal was like, he doesn't know where he is in his relationship with his wife, or no wife, should I say. And he's trying to navigate this situation with the parents. It's a really funny rom-com based on true story, which is why I've gone for that for uh, for this film. So that's another Nick Cage film in the record books. If you've seen this one or any of the others, please get in contact with us. You can drop us an email to cagefightingpod at gmail.com. Please make sure you've got us on the socials, which is Twitter, Insta and TikTok at cagefightingpod. Uh, obviously, this is where we put all our calls out for all the questions and whatnot when we do our question casts. Uh, please make sure that you're subscribed to us on whatever podcatcher you're listening. Uh, if you could leave us a review whilst you're there, we would love you forever. But for this week, Matt, would you like to say goodbye? Take it day, everybody. Look after yourselves and stay safe in the big, bad, cold world. Stu, would you like to say goodbye? Just look on the bright side of life. You don't need Sarah all the time. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> it's goodbye from me. And remember, be excellent to each other.